So I'm here today with Joan Martin. She founded the Erie County Rape Crisis Center in 1972 and went on to become a statewide leader in anti-sexual violence advocacy and victim services. The Rape Crisis Center, for those who don't know, evolved into what we now know as the Crime Victim Center of Erie County. It serves thousands of crime victims each year and has a budget of more than a million dollars. Just began construction of a new sexual assault response center, a central hub for examination and care of victims of sexual assault and the investigation of those crimes. I wanted to talk to Joan today about her pioneering work, the history of the center, and the movement, and gather her thoughts on this important expansion of services. So Joan, give us some background on how you just came to realize the need for these services in Erie County. Well, I was a school teacher who moved to Erie in 1970 and knew very little about sexual assault. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't come up much in my life. And my oldest daughter went to a neighborhood store to get milk for a neighbor and um, because they sold comic books and Coke smoothies and all kinds of things that kids love. On a gorgeous October day that was sunny and the trees were all in color, it was beautiful. And um, she was raped on the way home. Uh, someone approached her and said their dog was hurt and could she see it laying down by the creek. And, uh, uh, he pushed her over the guardrail and raped her. She was 12, mm. wore braces, and um, left her comic books and her candy there and took the milk to my neighbor's house and said what had happened. And uh, we, of course, called the police immediately and did all of that kind of thing. I called the family doctor who did an examination, but not a forensic one, because nobody did that. Um, and we, the police officer was leaving, and we were standing in the kitchen next to the phone, and he said, you ought to call somebody for help. And I, I actually picked up the phone and said, right. do you know their number? And he said, I don't know who you would call. Uh, so I hung up the phone and um, started doing investigative work, I guess. Mm -hmm. I found out that there were rape crisis centers, and I called... Uh, Pittsburgh Women Against Rape and talked to a counselor there who told me things to do with Rebecca um, and called all over the country as a matter of fact and this Monday when she went back to school I went to the library and read everything that was written and um, knew that we needed to have services I, I was at a loss hmm. everybody was at a loss my doctor said, does she have a boyfriend? I said, she's 12 and wears braces. No. Um, somebody grabbed her off the street. And um, as I read and called and talked to people, it became very evident that, that rape crisis centers were needed. I started to find out the number of people who did not report because there was no services. And the fact that really the, the police have investigative procedures that they follow and they're good and they work but nobody had taught them how to talk to a child rape victim no. um, the hospitals certainly have the ability to do a forensic examination but there were so few of them nobody did them or didn't do the, the whole workup that needed to be done so I went to Bill Hill was county commissioner and said we need to do this and he put me in touch with Chief Sam Jamelli the police department because we wanted to work with them and um, 
think, Chief Marshal at Mill Creek too. And um, we flew and I put together a board of directors. And the first big discussion we had was, I wanted to call it the Erie County Rape Crisis Center. And they were somewhat hesitant about using the word because we didn't say that word. Mm -hmm. Was it in the newspaper? We didn't talk about it. It was a big secret then. And I said, no, it's the name of a crime and they're a victim of crime. Let's call it what it is. And we do. We mm -hmm. use the word rape now mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so we put the board together. We named it, we incorporated, and uh, we flew some folks in from D.C. and Harrisburg to do training and started as an all-volunteer organization. The county gave us money for a phone line and an answering service, and um, that was it. We were volunteers. The office was the back of my Chevy station wagon. I've read that. <laughs> yeah. So how did that work? Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it was in the garage at night and locked the rest of the time. Yeah. Um, we just wanted, to, we had a vision. Yeah. And uh, the vision was that there would be somebody who was trained in this, who knew the police procedure and the hospital procedure and the court procedure. And that if you called, the services were always to be free. You'd, you'd been raped, you didn't need to pay anything. Right. And um, the two counselors, one for the family and one for you, or two for you and we get another one for the family. But they would stay with you through the police investigation, the hospital examination, court if it went that far, and provide counseling for you until you had resolved what had happened to you. And it's pretty scary. If somebody can take your body away from you, right. the thoughts in your head, he can kill me. Um, I was surprised at how many children there were the first year. And I don't know why that surprised me, because it was my daughter who was raped and she was only 12. But we're talking wee kids, six, seven, and eight. That, that surprised me. Um, and the other end of the spectrum, too, older women are very much at risk because um, they live alone. They're widows. A lot of right. older women are widows and they live alone. And uh, you get, you're not so feisty when you get to be 86 years old and right. somebody crawls in your window in the house and rapes you. So the service, they get better. They can, yeah. they, they heal. You don't forget it, obviously, but you integrate it into who you are and you survived it. And the most important thing, I think, for any victim to remember is you survived it. You survived it. You're that strong. So we uh, worked uh, out of a station wagon and with uh, pagers and no cell phones then. It was interesting staying in touch. Um, and then um, we got a little bit of money and we rented a little bit of office space on 11th Street. Had a reception area, a little tiny office, a great big back room and a bathroom. <laughs> and uh, now we had a space. MHMR was kind enough to give us furniture that they weren't using anymore, so we had chairs and desks and filing cabinets. We were in seventh heaven. And uh, then the Governor's Justice Commission approached us and we said no. We wanted to be independent. And then we got smart and said, okay, <laughs> we'll write a grant. And uh, we didn't change the, the process. Uh, 
we stayed on 11th Street for a long time, then we moved up to Upper Peach Street. Um, we used volunteers as paraprofessionals. I wrote a 40-hour training for everybody. And uh, we hired some folks that worked there, me and a psychologist and a secretary. And um, we grew quickly. We got MHMR money. We got DPW money. We got Governor's Justice Committee money. And um, the services stayed the same. No matter what, the services stayed the same. Uh, we started seeing other crime victims as we got older, uh, people who had lost a child to murder ended up coming to us mm -hmm. too. Um, what the crime victims that are doing now is something that was just a dream in my head, that there would be a facility where the forensic work was done, you didn't have to go in the hospital waiting room, it's just it's an amazing thing that they're doing. They're bringing a dream that I had in the 70s to fruition today. Mm -hmm. And I also know that Erie, as a community, no matter what's going on with viruses and presidential right. elections and uh, the next door neighbor's dog barking all night, um, will help. Yeah. I know that they will, because these are our most vulnerable people. And how, especially in those early days, did calls tend to come in sort of right after an incident, or did you hear from folks who maybe something had happened to them a while ago and they saw that now there was someone to talk to? Um, oh, calls came in right away. The okay. police would call us if they got a rape. Um, the victims would call us first before they called the police sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, people started to report to talk about it. And um, the community was interested in what we were doing. I mean, I was going to ask about that. How we, was we it received? Had, we had. I, I love Erie. Yeah. <laughs> when you're doing something good, Erie yes. supports you, and they do. I had a little kid. We were running short of money. We had so many cases one time, and a little girl sent me 13 cents her allowance taped uh, in an envelope. Um, I cried for about half an hour mm. on that one. Uh, apparently one of her little friends had been a client of ours. And she wanted to... She gave me her allowance. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and we did a lot of public speaking, prevention, and information. You know, prevention's important, and there are five things that you can do to... You can't stop. I thought we could stop rape, you know, yeah. Liz. I was young and naive, and I thought, you know, if you tell people how bad this is, they'll quit doing it. Right. Well, that doesn't work that way. Um, so I did a lot of presentations. I wrote a program, Good Secrets, Bad Secrets, uh, and Junior League made a, a coloring book out of my presentation. I think they still use it. Um, so we did schools, but people wouldn't want to hear about what we were doing, garden clubs and the Kiwanis and, you know. I never gave a speech ever, ever. And the whole time I was there that afterwards somebody didn't come up to me and say, Joan, I've never told anybody this, but I usually took a counselor with me to presentations because there was always one and sometimes more. What, and this maybe is a complicated question, but 
What did you find over the time the most effective things, the most helpful things were for victims? I, mean, I know you said, you, you know, remember you survived, but, but what do they need? They need support. Mm-hmm. Um, and in whatever area, it's not always the same area that they need, but they need somebody there that they can talk to. The healing process for sexual assault is to be able to talk about it. Um, you can't just, you know, put it in the closet in your mind because every time we open the closet door, it falls on your head. Um, it's like mushrooms. <laughs> if you take mushrooms who grow in the dark and damp and put them in the sunlight, they turn to dust. Yeah. The trauma of what happened to you, if you talk about it, you can take ownership of it and integrate it. Mm-hmm. You don't forget it. It does change you, but it, it, it can also make you stronger. And it takes time. It takes time. And families get upset. Every dad or brother wants to go kill him, and you can't do that because then you're in jail and she happens to need you right then. <laughs> and I use the feminine a lot, but understand this happens to male children and men too. I mean, it's... I think the data is one in five females before the age of 16 and it's slightly higher for males. Um, but I've never believed that. I think it's the same. You just don't hear about it. If it's difficult for a woman to present, right. imagine how difficult it is for a male. And what kind of feedback did you get from victims? I mean, even years later you shared that anecdote with me. I mean, what did it mean to them to have that service? The story I told you was about a little girl who had been kidnapped and raped, and uh, we did a lot of work with her, you know, in all the areas. Um, and she eventually they stopped counseling. There, mm-hmm. there's nothing more to do. When we let them stay, as long as they need to have a place to go, I had an older victim who was raped and the counseling went very well and two years later she was still stopping by for donuts in the morning because I think it was the donuts and just hi to everybody. And that was fine. Um, But I ran into her uh, at a store. She was checking me out of the store and I didn't recognize her because she was eight when I was dealing with her and she was like 22 then. She was in law school. And she was beautiful and she was smart. And she said to me, Joan, and I said, yes, she's my redheaded person. And I said, yeah. And I thought, oh my God, it's you. Yeah. She just said, you were there. And you held my hand through it. And we talked about it. And we talked about my feelings. And uh, and you do have to talk about it. You know, they get angry. They're frightened. I mean, there's just a whole myriad of things that they need support with. Yeah. But a couple times I've heard from them, Yeah. Uh, those beautiful girls and women that we worked with, and um, they just say thank you and hug you, and that's plenty, and tell you what they're doing in their life. I've got uh, two attorneys, uh, one director of a crime victim center, and a in the state, um, a lot of teachers, wow. a couple, couple people that just uh, you know went to college, 
uh, one one's a mu musician, beautiful musician, makes her living making mm. music. Um, sometimes you know, mm. sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. But I've known enough that they just say thank you. You were there. You were there. Yes. You were there. I'm so glad you were there. Mm. And you you helped. I mean. You talked about coordinating with the police early on, and I think I've read with the district attorney's office, too. I mean, oh, I think yeah. having these services kind of changed the way these cases go through court in some way, too. Is that right? Or? Yeah, I think so. Um, the sentencing guidelines for rape, I, I, I think it's 8 to 16. I, that's the DA's problem, not mine, yes. but I think it's 8 to 16. You could rape somebody with a weapon and brutalize them, and you maybe got two years in prison. Mm -hmm. They don't do that anymore. They stopped doing that when somebody started watching. And it, and it wasn't that anybody was wrong. It was just, there were very few of them. Very, very few of them. And people always say, well, there's false reporting. Well, yeah. But very rare. And children do not lie about this. I said that very firmly, didn't I? Yes. Children do not lie about things like this. And you were active even statewide in the emergence of this field, right? Talk to me about that a little bit. Um, the rape crisis centers all over Pennsylvania kind of got together for a meeting in Harrisburg. And it Would was. this have been the early 70s, would you say? Oh, or? yeah. Yeah. So Absolutely, the early 70s. Um, and we were there, and we we're all experiencing the same thing. I was so lucky. I, our police worked with us. Our DA's office with us. The community supported us. I mean, it was, you know, amazing to me. Because I'd go and hear about the cops won't even talk. Oh, wow. To, we weren't allowed to go near victims or anything. And, and we didn't tamper with evidence. We didn't tell them to say things. I said the same thing to every person going to court. Simply tell the exact truth. That's all. That's all we needed to do. So we got together. We formed a group and um, called ourselves the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape, PCAR. And um, we set our bylaws and I kind of rewrote them. I didn't like them. I had an attorney on my board, so we sat down and kind of redid them, and we mailed them to everybody, and they did adopt those bylaws. And uh, we became a 501c3. We registered as that. And um, it gave rules. It gave, instead of, you know, 30 little voices saying that, that, that uh, we had one great big voice saying, yes. this is what needs to be done. And um, I was fortunate enough to be elected the first president of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. And it was fascinating because we were just getting started. We had to decide how to divide up money and um, who was going to belong and what the criteria was and that there was standardized care. We were looking for, you could do it your own way, but there wanted to be yes. some standards. And uh, we could raise money together. So we worked a lot with legislators. And um, I think we did a good job. They're still there. Big are still. It is. Yeah, and very active. Yeah. Were there any major hurdles or setbacks in any of this? Money. Yeah. 
It was hard in the beginning. I laugh about the station wagon, but it was, you know, we didn't have a computer or a typewriter. We were, you know, you'd, a lot of handwritten stuff. There were um, dissenters. I was giving a speech at a, a garden club, and they were, I talked to them, they were excited about me coming, and they were just sitting there like, yes. And I finally said, would somebody please tell me what's going on? Well, that man you sent from the center. I said, I didn't send a man from the center. I would never send a man to your house from the center without calling you and telling you someone was coming, and it'd probably be a woman. Although we had men at the center. Yeah. Because there are male victims. Um, there's a Ku Klux Klan in Erie, and they took the most salacious, horrible information I've ever seen and dropped off at this woman's house because it was in the paper. Oh my. Um, yeah, it was, well, it turned out to be kind of exciting. The FBI came, the area really? police department. Oh, I called them, I was mad. Oh. I was, I was angry. Yeah. <laughs> How dare he pass himself off as the rape crisis center. And um, so they came and the ladies got to see the FBI at work and play. <laughs> And they knew who was, and he got to go to jail. Hmm. Uh, you can't represent people that you don't represent. Um, there were always people who wondered what we were up to um, until it happened close to them, and then they yeah. knew. You worried a lot. I mean, getting people to understand this is the way something has to be done, mm -hmm. and it changes difficult. But considering some of the stories I've heard about rape crisis centers, yeah. ours was a garden path. Yeah. Because of where we live and who we are in Erie. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. We take care of our own. And um, that became evident over and over and over again. That's wonderful. Um, what sort of things are you most proud of when you, when you look at that legacy? Wow. I had a blotter on my desk and um, there was a piece of paper in there. And I saw it. Every time I looked at my desk, it said, your life is a success if your tombstone reads beloved wife and mother. <laughs> People were very generous um, in recognizing the work that I was doing. And it wasn't just me. It was every volunteer I had, every staff member I had. In the beginning, we were just people from the community who trained ourselves or let the D.C. person come in and do it. And then we took what she gave us and expanded it to 40 hours. Mm -hmm. uh, those women were out the middle of the night going to the hospital and police station. Somebody had a call on holidays. Somebody had it on their birthday. Mm. Um, it wasn't me. I just ran the place. It was all the people who worked at the center who gave their time and energy and concerns. I mean, they were the most amazing group of people I have ever seen in my whole life. Mm. They would do anything to keep the center going, to keep us providing services to the people that were hurt that we dealt with. Um, I, I guess the highlight was working with them. 
I, I, they, they were amazing human beings. Yes. And, and that was an absolute joy to work with them and made my job easier. I was grateful for the recognition I got. Um, my mother was proud of me. My dad was embarrassed. I sent him something in an envelope oh from the Rape Crisis Center one time, and he said, what will the post office lady think? And I said, well, I think your daughter runs an agency, Daddy. <laughs> um, I think the relationships I had with my staff and with the victims and uh, police officers, DA's office, I mean, those were just, those were precious relationships. Yeah. And I'm proud of them that I that I was able to have them and keep them. Did in speaking of your father's reaction, I mean, growing up or as a young wife and mother, did you ever imagine you would become, you know, the, at the forefront of, of a movement like this? Did no, you, were you, I was a school. Were you teacher. a firebrand in any in any other capacity or anything? Or okay, I was uh, quiet. I was painfully shy in school. Oh, really, I had the right answer, but you had to walk back to hear me. <laughs> One of my teachers made me take a speech course my senior year. Um, mm -hmm. When Becca was born, uh, I, of course I had to change the world. Only union lettuce and no child picking grapes and that war that was going on then needed to stop um, because I had this baby and I brought it into the world so the world had to be a better place. Um, I was 20-something. And then I just stopped school. I this never crossed my mind. No. But I think your feet are put where they need to be by a higher, a higher power, uh, and that's always been my prayer when I worked with clients. There. Okay, you put me here. Help me do it right. I wanted to see get your thoughts on kind of the the Me Too movement. I mean, it, in some ways, in some ways you think some of this would have happened a long time ago, given how long we've been working on these issues, that women would be coming forward with their stories, but that really was kind of a, um, a shock when so many people started just sharing their stories. And I guess maybe they had in private settings, but it became a, a public outpouring, more yeah. or less. Well, the same thing happened with the rape movement. The 60s, I sort of remember them. Uh, it was a long time ago. Um, women were coming together in consciousness raising groups. Do you remember that? Well, no, and I'm, I'm interested to hear about that. I think my mother was involved in some of it. but Okay. Um, uh, we were doing all kinds of, uh, you know, things. We were busy changing the world for the better. And... Um, your basic, like the local women's club that I belonged to then, as I was teaching school, um, started talking about women's issues because they were, I don't know, women were, put a bunch of us together, we start talking about our issues. <laughs> and, um, and it was happening all over the place. And somebody would say, this happened to me. And if you're in a room with eight women, a whole lot of them are going to say, me too, me yeah. too, me too. Which is why they call it the Me Too movement. And that's that's really the beginning of the rape 
movement was was back at the end of the 60s when women were actually talking together about women's issues you know we have the right to vote let's use it yes we can say that uh look at northern ireland i'm tired of this word it's going to stop um i don't want my sons to go and die um i i see babies picking strawberries that's not right Geraldo Rivera did studies on nurse uh, hospitals uh, for the for people who were incapable of living on there, and it was the treatment was horrific. Um, so all of these issues were being talked about, and it was inevitable that sexual abuse would come up. And out of that movement grew the rape crisis centers. So here it is, two thousand something, and. Um, I think people minimize minimize sexual harassment um, in the workplace, especially. Um, and they started talking again. <laughs> and the same phrase came up, me too, me too, me too. Well, it's a different media time than it was in the 60s. You didn't have Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's instant out there for the world to see. We didn't have that. We just had the newspaper and television, four or five television stations and, and stuff. That was it. That was yeah. it. And magazines. Mm -hmm. um, I think, again, women were coming together and the same phrase, me too. I, I, that struck me when I heard it called that because I thought, oh, I heard that once before. <laughs> Um, but it's instantaneously broadcast everywhere. And the numbers are shocking people because nobody realized how bad it was. And it looks like overkill because it's broadcast constantly. And I think it loses some of the impact unless it gets really serious. You know, when you start going crossing from just harassing you at work and making you uncomfortable to sexual abuse. It's all abuse. It's right. just not quite as bad as rape. But I think that's part of what's going on. It's, we, it's a different world, so they're pushing it further. Are there sort of, and, and this maybe flows into what they're doing at the Crime Victim Center, but are there things you'd still like to see you know, come into play, come into place to, to make things stronger for victims? We didn't have a victim room at the courthouse. There is one now, I believe. We used to sit in the DA's office or the hallway, kind of guarded off so no one could get near it. Um, the crime victim, I mean, all victims of crime, I don't care what the crime is, have a response to it. Um, because it's, you it's a violation, and um, uh, we need to acknowledge that. So I, the crime victim center is really a great place, and people, I would guess, about little crimes are hesitant to go there, but I hope they do. Um, uh, victims have to, and then they have rights now. I mean, and they know that they have rights now. Right. I just, I think the world needs educated more about what a victim reaction is. Whether it's tiny or huge, it's you feel violated. You really yeah. do. 
we need to have more understanding of what victims as an enormous group go through. And, and just the last thing would be just with the Crime Victim Center, they are creating kind of a one, I hate to use the term one-stop shop, Stop, but, yeah. but, but it is a place, I guess, where folks can go to be examined. The interview can take place there. The counseling can take place there. Sounds to me like it'll remove even the hospital setting, you know. Um, hospital setting was face it. You go through the emergency room, and uh, sometimes you have to wait. They pretty much take you in right away. But if someone's having a heart attack or bleeding, they go right. first. Um, it, it's nice. The police were always good. They would come to the center and interview victims. I, you know, oh, I didn't sometimes. know that. Yeah, yeah, they were little kids. They interviewed them in my office sometimes. Um, same with the DA. DA has to prep the kids, and they would come. But my office um, on 11th Street really wasn't set up for that. We we did have a room, uh, a playroom, when we moved up to Peach Street, and they could be interviewed in there. And even for um, the adult women, it was sometimes easier to sit in a couch in a chair, and it made it normal. Yeah, try for normal. Um, I, I like the concept. I mean, I always dreamed of a, a I use the word clinic, but a place where the forensic exam could be done, where there would be nice interview rooms where you could be interviewed or meet with a doctor. It just, it sounds like a great, I mean, it was a dream. Mm -hmm. And they're working on it. Is there anything I didn't ask you about or that you think of when you're reflecting on your work or these issues? that you think people should and I'm glad you said that about more education about victims experiences because I think that's on point I, I think it yeah. does I think people don't understand they hear folks talking about me too me too and they don't get it because they don't they've not experienced it uh, anybody who's experienced it knows exactly what they're talking about um, I think still if you're a victim of sexual abuse, talk about it. Reach out. I don't care how long ago it was. Every rape, the victim, there's something that bothers the victim. When Becky and I were talking about this, uh, she said, Cars drove by beyond the way home, but they didn't stop. And she's still angry about that. And it never occurred to me, I didn't know anything then, to think about the walk home. And what she would have looked like was a 12-year-old who'd been horse-rashing around. She had sticks in her hair and stuff. Um, a kid out playing that was sent to go get milk. But for her, they were growing up people that drove by and didn't stop to help. I have to deal with that. And she carried the milk home. Responsible. And you did the walk by yourself, you're strong. And mm -hmm. she needs to hear those things, but not the night she was telling me about it. And I thought, I didn't know that. I never thought about the walk home. I just thought about, I just wanted to just, Uh, Harry was not bad. 
I mean, there were crackpots. But compared to the support, they didn't right. matter. And I am absolutely... It was the women who came together to run that center. It wasn't me. It was all of us. Every one of us. I was happy I got a Jehovah Witness once they didn't celebrate holidays. Because <laughs> I always took Christmas and Easter and I didn't ask I wasn't gonna ask anybody to do anything I wouldn't do. So I took all the major holidays. Yeah. Um, I can remember coming home on Christmas Eve and I drove um I guess we were on Eleven Street Drive by St. Patrick's and they were singing Christmas carols. And I stopped the car and listened for a minute and said, Oh well. God knows I'm here. Oh. And I went home. Imagine being raped on Christmas Eve. So you didn't feel too sorry for yourself. Hers was worse. So enough. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for taking the time to talk, and thank you for everything you did oh. and do.